The passage this morning is from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Be we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and each week we're asking the question, Who is this Jesus? And here in chapter 3, that question was on everybody's mind up to this point in the story. It was on the front of every paper. Because now the cat's out of the bag. Already Mark has mentioned about how great crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. How constantly people were closing in around him just so they could touch him. And at one point, Jesus even tells the disciples to have a boat ready so that the crowds will not crush him and that he can make an escape. Jesus was absolutely catapulted to a rock star status overnight. And so, you really cannot overestimate how much Jesus turned the world upside down. Because nobody knew what to do with him. Not even his own family. Their first response is they think that Jesus has gone crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. And then there's the scribes that came up from Jerusalem to see him and to see what all the fuss was about. They didn't know what to do with him either. The best that they could come up with was that he was doing everything that he was doing by the power of Satan. So here, the very leaders of Israel who were trained in the scriptures couldn't recognize the difference between the demonic and the divine. And so it's easy to lose sight of how radical Jesus' ministry really was. Because the very people that you would think would have recognized him actually have no clue what to do with him. And so in this passage this morning, we see Jesus and his kingdom confront two sacred institutions that were at the very core of Israelite life and culture. The family and the religious establishment. And what he does 
is he turns both of them upside down and he reorients them and he redefines them by himself and by his kingdom. And so really the main theme of this passage is what does it mean to be inside this kingdom and what does it mean to be on the outside looking in? And so, first we'll consider the scribes. How does Jesus and his kingdom challenge them? Well, the scribes were going around telling everyone that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or Satan. So Jesus responds with a simple parable. Verse 23, he says, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Verse 26, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. So there's two layers here to Jesus' response. The first is that he's saying, look, if, I'm, if what I'm doing is by the power of Satan, then that means that Satan is actually at civil war with himself and coming to an end. Therefore, scribes, should you not be supporting my ministry? Should you not be supporting what I'm doing? Isn't what I'm doing actually good news? But then he goes a little bit deeper and he says, secondly, He's saying all of this is happening because a new power has broken into this world. And Satan is actually no match for it. In fact, Satan is the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger man. And then he talks about the unforgivable sin. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Let's close in prayer. No. <laughs> I talked to a few people this week about this, and I, you know, so who, you know, who grew up with the fear that they had committed the unforgivable sin? I saw a hand go up back there, a few of them. Mine should go up. I certainly was afraid that I had committed the unforgivable sin, and perhaps you as well. But there's a bit of irony that I remember. Different, like just a weird logic if you're afraid of committing the unforgivable sin, is there not? Because if you're afraid that you committed the unforgivable sin and you try to figure out if you do, it doesn't really matter because even if you did do it, it's unforgivable. And you can't do anything about it anyways. So, it's all very murky, is it not? And maybe you remember when you were afraid that you had committed the unforgivable sin, all you got was the message that, hey, there's an unforgivable sin out there. Nobody really knows what it is, but you don't want to do it because it's unforgivable. So don't do it. Now, a couple things. Number one, if you have ever worried that you have committed the unforgivable sin, then you have not committed the unforgivable sin. This is not referring to Christians with a conscience. Secondly, remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the scribes. He's talking to the ones that held the promises of God. They tasted the goodness of God in his promises. They were trained in the revelation of God in the scriptures. And yet, despite all of that, here they are calling Jesus and his ministry, which he says is done by the power of the Spirit, 
they call that evil. And thirdly, do not think of the unforgivable sin as an action. He's referring to a disposition. So, here's an illustration that might help. Imagine you are adrift at sea, treading water, trying to stay afloat, and survive. And there are a number of small boats that pass you by, but they can't get to you because the waves are too rough. But they yell out to you and tell you to hold on, remain steadfast, and wait because there's a rescue boat that's coming for you. And boat after boat after boat goes by telling you to hold on and remain steadfast because there's a rescue boat coming. There's a rescue boat coming. And finally, when that rescue boat gets to you, you decide not to get on it because you don't like how it looks. It wasn't what you were expecting. And so you decide instead, you've made it thus far, you've treaded water this long, you might as well continue to do so and wait until a rescue boat that's more to your liking comes along. That is the story of the scribes and the religious elite. Because they heard the little boats of the prophets one after the other, tell them about the rescue boat that was to come. And yet, when it arrived, they didn't like how it looked. They wanted a different boat. And Jesus is saying that he is the rescue boat, and there's not another one coming. And so whenever they see him, and they call him in his ministry by the Spirit evil, then they will remain in their sins and they will never receive forgiveness. Not because of a simple action, but because of their disposition towards the kingdom. That when they see it, they don't want any part of it. Which means that they will drown in their sins. They will never receive forgiveness because they never wanted it in the first place. Now, I'm going to try and safely assume that there's no one in here that's committed the unforgivable sin by people saying that the ministry of Jesus and the power of his spirit is evil. But we do have to treat this fairly and recognize that this is not written to people that have never heard about the name of Jesus. This is written to church folk, people that knew the scriptures. And so there's at least some measure of warning and challenge to us. And perhaps it's simply this. It's to remember that Jesus and his kingdom are what God is doing in the world. And he's not doing anything else. And so do not find yourself on the outside looking in. Because he is the last boat home. And so it's a reminder that you can be an insider and yet still be an outsider. Do not be on the outside looking in of this kingdom. It's something that we need to be reminded of and be vigilant towards that it's not a one-time decision, but it is a daily one. It is one where we constantly have to ask ourselves the hard questions. If we aren't motivated by the Jesus that's standing in front of us to bring the will of God into our life, then what would possibly motivate us? And so, may we not be on the outside looking in. But it's not just the scribes. We also have to deal with Jesus' family because they too are on the outside looking in. And they're on the outside looking in in ways that are probably closer to home for us. So how does Jesus challenge his family? 
How does he teach us what it looks like to be inside his kingdom? So verses 20 and 21. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. That's very strong language that's being used here. In fact, whenever Mark uses the word for seized in reference to Jesus, it's always used in the sense of hostility. So here we are, where Jesus' own family is hostile towards what he is doing. They think that he is going crazy, and they come to put an end to this whole charade and to bring him home. Now, this is not a flattering portrayal of Jesus' family because they are on the outside looking in. So this morning, if you have family issues, at least you can say Jesus did too, right? But let's give him a break here. Because Jesus' ministry and what he's doing would have been incredibly, incredibly disruptive for their family. So let's set some context here. You know, the family was the social and economic foundation for Israelite life, for Israelite culture. Generations after generation would live together. Your family chose who you married. Your family determined your social circle. Your family determined who you did business with. Your standing in the community was based on your family's standing in the community. And the oldest son would take over the family business. He'd train the younger brothers. He'd train the sons in the family trade. Land would be handed down through the generations. Mothers would live with sons in their old age and in their widowhood. And on top of all of that, you were chosen by God because you were born into an Israelite family. Everything revolved around family. So think just for a second about how disruptive Jesus' ministry would have been for his family. You know, most everyone believes that Joseph had already died at this point, which meant that Jesus, as the firstborn, would have run the family affairs. Yet at 30 years old, he leaves his construction job behind, he leaves behind the family business, and he left the home for good. He's no longer financially supporting his family or his widowed mother, and that responsibility now falls on his brothers. All the while, Jesus is traveling the countryside, asking people to follow him, saying very disturbing things about being the Son of God, and teaching about a very strange kingdom that only seems to resonate with those on the fringes of society. How's that for family drama? And his family is upset because Jesus is not playing by their rules. They all think they know who Jesus is. They all think that they know where Jesus belongs. They all think that they know what Jesus should be doing. So you can imagine some of the things that they would say to him. Jesus, you're my son. Come home and take care of your mother. Jesus, you're our brother. Come home and let's get back to work. Mom's worried sick. This isn't where you belong. This isn't who you are. They all thought they knew who he was. A son, a brother, a carpenter. They raised him. They lived with him. They worked with him. 
And yet, for all of their proximity to him, all of these years, and for all of their familiarity with him, they still could not see him for who he was. So I think this issue with Jesus' family presents us with a couple of questions for us to consider. And the first one is this. Has your familiarity with Jesus caused you to lose sight of who he really is? Has your familiarity with Jesus caused you to lose sight of who he really is? I think this is a particular challenge for people that grew up in the church. Because just like Jesus' family, your familiarity with him actually, in the end, becomes an obstacle to seeing him for who he was. And growing up in the church can give a sense of familiarity with Jesus that can often be mistaken and confused as intimacy with Jesus. I mean, how easy is it to think of Jesus like an old friend or a big brother? Like, man, I've known Jesus since I was a kid. We used to go to the same church. Jesus and I came up together. We were in the same Sunday school. I've known him my whole life. I love that guy. You have a sense of familiarity with Jesus because you grew up hearing the stories. You grew up hearing his teaching. You grew up learning about the miracles and the parables. And yet, deep down, it still feels like something is missing. And perhaps, just like his family, it's because your familiarity with Jesus has actually caused you to be unable to see who he actually is. And so you're familiar with Jesus, yes, yet there's no longer a sense of participation in the radical purpose of God, purposes of God in the world. So yes, you're familiar with Jesus and his teaching, yet they don't carry a sense of radical new life that he presents to you. And so in that familiarity, discipleship comes to a halt. Why? Because familiarity is not intimacy. Familiarity is not knowing Jesus as he is. And each of Jesus' family members had to actually walk that road. They had to walk that road of moving away from familiarity and move towards real intimacy with Jesus. And that would have been hard because they had to learn to see him for who he truly was. Even not just in Mark, but even in other Gospels. You see Mary having to come to terms with no longer seeing Jesus as her son, but as her Savior. His brothers would have to no longer see him as their brother, but as their master, their Lord, and their God. That's a big jump. To see all of that in the midst of someone that you thought you knew. But what's he doing? Jesus is inviting them into a new relationship by inviting them into his family, not trying to get him to go back to theirs. In verses 31 to 35, he addresses his family and he says, his mother and his brothers come sending for him. And he says, who are my, my mother and brothers? And he looks around at the table. And he says, these, it's them, it's these people. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. How do you think his family would have felt hearing that? No, Mom. This is my family. No, James. These are my real siblings. 
Because what's he really saying? Real intimacy with Jesus, truly knowing him, is not based on the family that you were born into. Nor is it based on an awareness or a familiarity with all that he has done. It's only based on doing the will of God. It's joining him in his kingdom ministry. And in that, you become a part of a new family. So has your familiarity with Jesus caused you to lose sight of who he really is? This passage also challenges us with a second question. Which is more influential in your life? Family values or kingdom values? Which is more influential, family values or kingdom values? And so again, let's set some context and consider how disruptive Jesus' ministry would have been for his family. He's going around the countryside asking people to follow him, which no rabbi would ever do that. Secondly, he's asking these people, these men, to leave their homes, to leave their careers, and to leave their families behind. So not only is he disrupting his family, he's disrupting a whole lot more. And on top of that, he's associating with tax collectors who are absolute betrayers of their own people, and he's even asking them to come close and to follow him. He's constantly surrounded by outcasts, he's befriending sinners, and he's constantly touching the sick, the lame, and the leper, which would have made him ceremonially unclean by Jewish law to even enter into the temple and worship. And so, you can imagine how Jesus' family would have been bombarded with all sorts of questions. How all eyes would have been on them at the grocery store and at the gym. Mary, what's gotten into your son? What is he doing? What is all of this that I hear? James, what's gotten into your brother? And to top it all off, the scribes from Jerusalem, the most powerful, respected, learned, trusted men in their society, all think that Jesus is possessed by Satan. Mary, don't you know what they are saying about your son? So you can imagine that with all of this attention, they would feel exposed. Phones would get shut off, the blinds would shut, and they would want to remove themselves from the stare of the world around them. Why? Because it felt like Jesus was bringing shame upon their family. And so they come to try and stop him because they want to get their family back to how they felt it was supposed to be. They want to get their family back to what they felt was normal and back to the status quo. Jesus, you are turning our family upside down. But what's really happening here? What's really going on? What's happening is that the values of the kingdom are now at odds with the values of the family. Kingdom values have now confronted their family values, and it puts them to a decision. And so how does Jesus respond to them? Well, he also responds with this same parable. Again, look at verse 23. It says, And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Now, most often you hear this parable treated as though it's only a response to the scribes. But that's only part of it. Mark places this parable right in the middle of this encounter with his family. 
which means that he wants you to see this parable as a response to the scribes, but also to his family, which is why Jesus adds something in verse 25. He says, And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Jesus recognizes that his own house is divided. His own family is against him, and they are hostile towards what he's doing. But he's simply telling them that if all they want is for him to stop doing what he's doing and go back to the way that things were, then their family is going to fall apart because he is never going to go back to the way things were. He has a different set of values, and he has a different family. Jesus is putting his own family to a decision that they could either go back to the status quo and the values of their day, they could be more concerned about what everyone thinks about them, or they could reorient their entire family around this king, his kingdom, and his values. He's taking everything in his family and putting them to a decision by saying, you can either go back to that or recognize I am pulling everything towards me. You cannot have both. You cannot have it the way you want it, and you cannot have me. Choose this day whom you will serve. And if he does that to his own family, then he most certainly will do it to ours. Which gets us back to the question, which is more influential in your life? Family values or kingdom values? Now to be clear, there are all sorts of wonderful family values that are innocent and good. Maybe your family values quality time, and so you have a movie night or a game night every week. That's wonderful. Maybe your family values hard work, responsibility, taking ownership. That's great. Maybe your family says, hook them or gig them or sick them, whichever. All of those things can be good, and they can be fun, and they can bring the family together in both joy and sorrow. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's really talking about something far deeper than that. He's talking about making a decision about which will be more influential in your life because family values are not always the same as kingdom values. And so when push comes to shove, do you live by the family values or by kingdom values when they are at odds with one another? Which do you support? Which are you influenced by? And really, it's often the unspoken values that are really the most influential. It's the values in your family that are never said, but they're spoken each and every day in action and in relationship. So for instance, what about a family value that says this? We don't talk about issues in this family. We don't talk about issues. We don't address problems because that only makes things worse. So we all know dad's got an issue. We all know mom has problems. We all know brother's making decisions that's making his life fall apart. And sister is off the reservation. We all know that they have things going on, but we don't ever bring it up. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to cause problems. Because everything, what, revolves around not making that person upset. And so everyone walks on eggshells no matter how much that person affects everybody else. And so 
The family value is what? It's keep the peace at all costs. But the requirement for peace is that you have to ignore the elephant that's in every room, which really in the end is just a way of hiding sin and brokenness. And quite frankly, that's really not even true relationship. That's an alliance. It's a social contract that says, you and I are okay as long as you do this and you don't ever do that. It's conditional. And yet, if that is the value, then where is there room for the values of a kingdom that says that we are ministers of reconciliation? We're called to confront division and pursue peace. To love in the hard thing and in the hard ways. To love when it's not easy. And to seek healing from the effects of sin instead of trying to hide them. Or what about a family value where the value is appearance and presenting the family as having everything together. It's picturesque and it's perfect. And so it requires having, you know, the nice things. It's being associated with the right people, the prominent, the influential. And so the value is to present the family as though it's the family that everybody wishes they could have. And so you don't ever show cracks in the mirror or in the armor. You put your makeup on, you put a smile on your face, and you get back out there and dance. And yet, where is there room for the values of a kingdom that say we are called to confess our sins one to another? We're called to bear the burdens of one another, to be like our Savior and associate with the poor, the lowly, and the sinner. Where is there room to care less about one's own reputation and more about the reputation of Christ? Or just one more, what about the family value that says we don't show weakness in this family? You need to be strong. I'm doing you a favor because this world is really harsh and you better learn that lesson now. If you want to show weakness, you can do it on your own, but you won't find any sympathy here. That's how I learned and that's how you will learn. So where then... Is there room for living according to the values of a kingdom where the king says his power is made perfect in weakness? How could you possibly live according to the kingdom whenever the very thing through which his power is displayed is not allowed in your home? A kingdom that says we should boast in our weakness. A kingdom that says God himself, the Holy Spirit, meets us in our weakness. There are all sorts of values that we can live by that have nothing to do with the kingdom. And just like Jesus' family, choosing to live according to the values of the kingdom can be disruptive. They can turn things upside down. Yet what is it disruptive to? It's only disruptive to a status quo that will never produce freedom or transformation, or joy, or real relationship. Because all it can do is perpetuate brokenness, distance, division, and it's only a mechanism to hide sin. And it will never heal it. And the invitation Jesus gives to his family and to us is to lay hold of a new life. Part of the reason why the kingdom is so disruptive is because it's so different than what we're born into. It's actually really new life. 
And it's the new life that this world hates. And yet, it's the new life that offers freedom. It's the life that we desire. And Jesus says that is available to you in his invitation to bring his kingship and his kingdom and its values into the very center of your life. To bring those values into your marriage and to allow them to heal and restore and to make it something new. To bring his kingdom and your values into your parenting and recognize that it's by the values of the kingdom we're not raising children, we're raising disciples. Because only through the lens of the kingdom do we really appreciate family. It's through the lens of the kingdom that we see that the family is actually God's built-in discipleship program. But it's only, we only lay hold of that when his kingdom and his values begin to come into the center by which everything else orbits and revolves around. Yet, are there not times where we're like Jesus' family and our familiarity with him causes us to lose sight of who he is? We struggle, we forget, we get lazy about bringing his kingdom into our lives and instead we live by another set of values and so we feel like we're on the outside looking in. So what do you do? What do you do? You run to him. You run to him, not away from him. Why? Because his kingdom is not built on performance, appearance. It's not built on the family you were born into or how good you are, how strong you are, nor is it limited by anything that you have done in your entire life. Jesus says in verse 28 that all the sins of mankind will be forgiven because his kingdom is built on forgiveness. And you can come to your king just as you are and be honest with him and ask him for forgiveness because there is not one single instance in Scripture where Jesus denies forgiveness to one who truly asks. And with that invitation is the opportunity to bring the will of God into your home and into the center of your life and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in that, Jesus calls you brother, sister, and mother and says, welcome to the family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just like in this passage, you invite us to come to your table as brother, sister, and mother. We ask that you would help us to see the ways in which we live by a value system that is not of your kingdom. And then would you deal with the fact that whenever we recognize it, we're often reluctant to live according to your kingdom because we do know that it can be disruptive. It can be hard. And rocking the boat of the status quo is not always easy. Sometimes it means we have to suffer. But you suffered. And you empathize with every part of our weakness because you came in the flesh. You offered yourself and you died on the cross and rose again so that we might have new life. And so minister that new life to us as we come to your table. Minister that strength to us to walk the way of a disciple and one who is worthy of the call of brother, sister, and mother. We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen.